Please join me for a word of prayer as we remain standing. Oh God, take my words and think through and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and welcome to Christ the King this morning. Today is a day called Trinity Sunday. It's the one day of the year where we are supposed to, as a church, turn our attention to one of the most significant mysteries of the faith, that is God is a unity, yet within that unity there are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One day a week, that day being Trinity Sunday, so that's our subject, the Trinity. I was taught in seminary that if you approach a difficult subject, a difficult passage, you should ask three questions in preparing to preach. First is, what does it say? Saying, referring to the passage at hand. Secondly, what does it mean? What are the implications? And third, what are the applications? What does it mean to me? And that's what we'll do this morning. The Trinity. What do we mean when we say we believe in a Trinity? What does it mean? Secondly, what is it, or what do we say? Secondly, what does it mean? What are the implications? Why is it so important? Uh, just by way of reference, according to the church calendar, about seven days you're supposed to celebrate the same thing once a year. Trinity is one of those. This is just as important as Easter, just as important as Christmas. Why is it important? Third and final, why is it important to me? So let's jump right in. So what does the Bible say, mean, when it says uh, that we believe in the Trinity? Answer, nothing, because the word Trinity is actually not found in the Bible. It's a, it's a church word. It's a word that was developed to describe the practice of the Christians uh, very early in the church history, in the history of the church, but the actual word doesn't exist. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, uh, you can find hints that within the unity of God, there is sort of a complexity. So remember, Jewish people are renowned. One of the most important uh, commandments for a Jewish person is the Lord is one. There is one God. That's it. All the other nations, many gods, but you, one. Yet even within the pages, the first verse of the Bible, you hear hints of a complexity. Think with me, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. So you have God, the Creator, and yet something, someone distinct from God, the Spirit of God. So again, you have hints of complexity. Hints of complexity within the unity of God in the Old Testament. Move to the New Testament, and you have, I'll say, the assumption of the Trinity, uh, the assumption that within the unity of God there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we follow a lectionary, that means every Sunday there's a readings you're supposed to read on Trinity Sunday, this is what you're supposed to read. Uh, John chapter three, verses one through 16, why? Uh, why do we read that passage? Well, because each of the three members of the Trinity are mentioned within uh, this passage. God, is, God the Father is mentioned in verse 3. The Spirit of God is mentioned in verse 5. The Son is mentioned in verse 16. So there's an assumption that within the unity of God, there is a complexity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Another great passage for Trinity Sunday. Matthew chapter 28. Come back next year. That's probably the passage that will be read. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission, and the grammarians among us will be able to spot this red flag. This is the Great Commission. Jesus is sending his disciples to all nations, and he says, go into all nations and baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're a grammarian, your hair should be on fire. 
Why? It should be names. Go and baptize them into the, how many names? Three names. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How many names did I just list off? I mentioned three names, but how many gods are there? There is one God. There is only one name. Go baptize them the, the, into the one name of the three persons, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is an assumption. There is a complexity within within the unity of God. And the practice and the, what was hinted at in the Old Testament, what was assumed in the, in the New Testament, is concretized, is, is codified in the early church. And so in the early church, very early on, you have uh, letters like the letter to St. Barnabas, probably documents I've never read, you've never, probably never read, but it's the first time the word Trinity is mentioned. And the great Trinitarian creed is by St. Athanasius. And it's very long, uh, very daunting, but one of the most significant lines is from the Trinity, from that creed is this. This is in your sermon notes. You can follow along uh, in, in your sermon notes in the back of the page, in the back of the leaflet. The Athanasian Creed says this, Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there's not three gods but one God. And that's what we believe. And it's a mystery. But within that mystery, I see three important truths about God. First, that God is one. Well, how many gods? Just one. Yet within the, the unity of God, there is a, a multiplicity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Each person is distinct. Uh, when I was in youth ministry, and I was, my youth minister taught me that you know, God is kind of like water, and that he can exist as Liquid, ice, or steam. Incorrect. That's actually an ancient heresy called modalism. And modalism says that God can, the same basic guy, he just kind of takes different forms, right? He shape, he's, can be ice in one section, one time, water in another. That's not what we believe. We believe, no, that God is three different persons, each with their own will, each with their own task, each with their own personality. Three, not one. And further, there is equality within them. God is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. We don't believe that God is, the Father is really kind of the big, the one that matters. And everyone else is sort of secondary. No, we believe there's an equality that each is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each is God. So that is what we mean when we say that we believe in a trinity. The Trinity is a unique Christian belief that God's unity includes three equal and distinct persons. That's what we say. That's what we mean. Now, the second question is, what are the implications? Why does it matter? Again, I suggested that this, according to whoever makes up the church calendar, this day is just as important as Easter. Really? Why is it important that we recognize that within the unity of God, there's a trinity of persons? Let me start with a story to illustrate. I've mentioned this before. I'm in a covenant group. That's a group of 12 clergy. We get together on a yearly basis, and it's a very simple format. Each clergy member shares a little bit about their journey of the past year, and then we gather for prayer for one another. 
And we got together, we skipped last year for obvious reasons, we got together this past May, and everyone pretty much shared the same tale. It's been a hard year, I'm tired, I'm tired of making decisions, I'm tired of navigating mask mandates, I'm tired, tired, blah, 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 blah. And you could pretty much plus repeat for the 12 people who shared. And the same is true for you. Like when I'm not studying clergy as a sort of a special class of their, everybody, right? And John Yates is my mentor and he is the convener of this group. And he said, now I wonder what Jesus would say if he were here. What would Jesus tell you group of 12 people? 12 tired clergy, 12, what would he tell us? And he said, I think he would say something like this. Jesus would put your, his arm around you. He'd say, listen, David, listen, other clergy, I love you, I care for you. Just lean on me, and you're going to make it. That's what he would say. I know it may sound a little bit kind of vanilla, but it really spoke to, these, spoke to me and spoke to these other 12 tired clergy. What did he say? Simply the basic truth that you see on every Hallmark card that God loves you. And there's nothing more reassuring there's no theological truth that is more comforting that God is love and that he loves you. Now, take a little philosophical journey with me. What do you have to have in order to get love? What are some of the ingredients you have to have in order to get something that we would recognize as love? Number one, you have to have some, something to love. Right? You can't love yourself. Who do you love? I love me. It doesn't count. Right? Love. To say God is love, it means that God loves something. Right? Remember what we said about the Trinity. There is a distinction. There are three different persons within the Trinity. You have to have something to love in order to get love. Secondly, you have to have equality. I, we have a pet. He's made his way into several of my sermons, usually in a disparaging ways. Uh, I... My kids like my pets, or our pet, uh, but they, you cannot have the same relationship with a pet as you would with another human being. Why? Because there's simply not an equality of dignity. There is a distinction between the nature of a pet or an animal and the nature of a person. There, there is equality. And that's what you have to have in order to have love. Like, I can show mercy. I can have pity on a pet. You can have mercy or pity on something that's less than you, but you can't have love in the way that we'd recognize it. There has to be equality. Secondly, there has to be some sort of unity, right? It's no good for me to say, I love, you know, I love people way out there. Right? There has to be some sort of interconnectedness for us to get anything that relates to love. In other words, in order for God to be what we want God to be, that is, a God of love, he has to be the type of God that we describe him to be, one God that is comprised of three persons, equal in dignity, separate in their persons. Do you ever wonder what God was doing before he created the world? Sounds like another philosophical question with no real practical application. What was God doing before he made the world? Answer? It's actually not speculative, because Jesus tells us. John chapter 17, in his great farewell prayer, John, Jesus says this, as he's praying to his father, he says, Father, you have, uh, 
John chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created? He existed as a perfect, loving relationship. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit loving each. There was a perfect, harmonious relationship, community of love and perfect satisfaction. Every child, if a child were to ask a parent, why am I here? A good parent, if they had their wits about them, could say, you are here because mom and dad love you. I'm not talking about biology, or excuse me, that's true, but you are here because mom and dad love one another. That is an accurate response to why every child is here. And I'm not talking about the biology. I'm talking about the creative, uh, missionary force that love creates. St. Augustine said, lovers always sing. And what he meant that love always has a force. Love always grows. Love always creates. Lovers always sing. Lovers always do things. Lovers always make things. Love always expands. Goodness always grows. Every creature of God, every cicada, and there are a lot of cicadas, every tree, every blade of glass, every one of God's creatures, including you and me, can say, God, why am I here? And the answer, if we could hear one answer is, you are here because within me it exists a perfect community and fellowship of love. That is why you are here. So that's why it matters. God's Trinitarian nature allows him to be what we need him to be, and that is a God who is perfect love. What does it mean to you and me? Application. I want to suggest three applications. First of which is loving one another is very, very important. The Bible is full of one another verses. Love one another, Jesus says it. Uh, love one another, the Apostle Paul says it. It's all, you would have to be blind to, to, to miss this theme through the New, the New Testament. And when the Bible says one another, it has a very specific one another. It's not talking primarily about the world. It's not talking primarily about, it's talking primarily about the, the, the saints within the local church. When the Bible says love one another, it's referring to a specific one another. That is our love for our fellow Christians in the area. Should we love the world? Absolutely. Should you love your neighbors who aren't a part of the church? Absolutely. But I think the Bible would suggest that you and I should have a special love for the brothers and sisters, the followers of Christ in our own local community. Love for one another within the local church, being involved in the local church is very, very important. That's the first implication. The second implication, loving one another in the context of a local church is very, very difficult. Very important, it's very difficult. Why? Remember what you have to have in order to get love, you have to have differences. 
You have to have different persons. You have to have something to love. When Jennifer and I first met, she was not interested in me. She was interested in somebody else. Eventually, she saw the foolishness of her ways and came to me, and uh, she mentioned why didn't she end up pursuing this uh, relationship with this other uh, gentleman, and she said, well, I realized it was too much like talking to myself. We are too similar. It would be too boring, and we are uh, not similar. We are... Uh, we have differences, and it's our differences that make us, make our marriage strong. However, differences are difficult. And while our marriage is strong because of differences, it's our, some of our biggest fights have been because of our differences. How could you think that way? How could you think that, right? Differences are good, but differences are difficult to navigate. And if there's one thing that's true of the early church is that it was a church that was full of different people, different levels of maturity, different ethnicities, different colored skins, different spiritual gifts. It was just a church full of differences. And loving people who are different is hard. I think we have a fairy tale notion of love that, oh, you know, love your neighbor. All we need is a little gentle reminder. Put a sign in your yard. Love your neighbor. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Loving your neighbor is hard. And anyone who tells you different is just living in a fairy tale land. As I write in your sermon notes. Where do I write in your sermon notes? That love is, is lived out in... Uh, diapers and differences. I don't think I included that in my actual text, text, but it's a good quote, and it suggests that love, if it's not lived out in practical ways, it's just a fairy tale. And because concrete, sorry, I found my notes. The concrete situations of diapers and debts and divorce, these are the real tests of love. And because concrete situations are the real test of love, the concrete local parish is the real testing ground of love. Can you bite your tongue? Can you express gentleness? Can you learn to get along with people you disagree with? Can you serve when you don't feel like serving? These are the tests of love. These are the grease, this is the grease and the gears that allows a local church to thrive. Finally, love for one another is very compelling. There's something wonderful, beautiful about the Trinity. It is mysterious, but it is beautiful. And there's something compelling and beautiful about a group of people diverse in their opinions, diverse in their politics, diverse in everything aside from their lordship to Christ who are able to navigate and get along. I. Uh, when I started the church, I thought, we need to focus on three things in order to have a, a successful growing church. We need to focus on preaching, children's and youth ministries, and music. And if we get those three things, we'll do okay. I'd add a fourth thing that every church needs to focus on. And I would put it just as important as any, any of those other three things I just mentioned. Fourth thing a church has to have is a good coffee hour. I say a little tongue-in-cheek, but not much. You see, a church has to have a place where there's natural connections, where care can grow, where conversations can occur, a little garden that can allow love and affection to grow within a church. And I hope, and I wonder as our weather gets nice, 
not a great day today, uh, but as the weather gets nicer, as we take more permanent residents in this place, as we see kids kind of running out on the lawn and people enjoying coffee, I wonder if anyone will drive by and think, gosh, that looks like a type of community that I could benefit from. So let me summarize. What is it? What is the Trinity? The Trinity, the Trinity is the unique Christian belief that in the unity of God there are three separate and equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does it matter? It matters because that God is love. He is perfect, self-contented, satisfied love in himself and by himself. What does it mean to me? It means that God is the model of community. He is the model of fellowship. He is the model of love. And he's especially the model of community, fellowship, and love for the local church. So join me in prayer. Oh God, as we confess your unity and behold your, the Trinity, we pray that you would give us a vision of love for one another lived out in the local, in the unity of the local church. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.